Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to the Manhood Simplified podcast, the show where we rewrite the manual on manhood page by page, conversation by conversation, with the hope being that by the end of each conversation we have on this show, you will be inspired to be the change that we need to see in society. My name is Gamelike Bovana, and on this edition of the podcast, we're going to be unpacking why and how South Africa has become such the violent state that it is. And to help me unpack this conversation, it is an absolute pleasure of mine to welcome Mr. Luke Lamprecht onto the show, representing the amazing organization known as Fight with Insight. Luke, thank you so much for joining us. If you could please just take a brief moment to um, formally introduce yourself and talk us through the work that you do. How's it coming, Lichle? So my name's Luke Lamprecht, and I'm the director of Fight with Insight, and I'm also the advocacy manager for Women and Men Against Child Abuse. So there's an interface between young people who are offenders, uh, particularly of interpersonal violence, and secondly, an interface with the victims of that interpersonal violence between the two roles. Absolutely amazing to have you on the show, Luke. Now, this conversation around the the substantially high rate of violence around um, South African society has seemingly been happening against the backdrop of another conversation that is seemingly growing out of nowhere, which which seems to suggest that the men in South, in the men in society as large, at getting are getting softer and softer. Where do these two ideas clash, and how exactly did we as South African society become as violent as we are, particularly among the young people? So I think the first thing to think through is when we look at masculinities, there are a myriad of masculinities. And I think the, a lot of attention has been paid to what I call a combination of sort of the, the fragile and what people call toxic or misogynistic masculinity, where the behaviour of men can be interpreted as nothing other than the hatred of women and people that are not men. And the, the challenge is, is as we have tried to shift masculinities to be more thoughtful and considerate and not just those sort of stoic Spartans, you know, the ones who don't say a word about their feelings and are just warriors and protectors and providers, there's been a big backlash. And the backlash has largely been because the idea, you used the word soft, the idea that we as men have some kind of internal emotional life has been traditionally construed as weakness. So largely, if we look at violence in this country, it, it has been largely because um, of, frankly, structural violence. So if we go right back to sort of apartheid years and colonial years, when, when people are depersonalised, it is easy to depersonalise other people because you haven't developed the ability to think of the mind of another and to consider the effect of your behaviour on another. It's about imposing your will. And we have a history throughout uh, uh, South African history of people imposing their will on others. And then the dispossessed then look at the weakness of, say, women and children or people from the LGBTQIA plus community and then impose their will on them because they are the dominant structure. So it, it, is, it is very structural. And I think the biggest problem with the shift to the softness you're talking about is the fact that men believe that if they give up these traditional roles, what is happening is they lose something. The same has happened in the race debate, you know, with the black economic empowerment um, conversation where white people will think that, you know, if you empower black people, you're taking something from white people. Rather than seeing us in a way of social cohesion where you have a fluidity 
of roles across genders. There's an either or. And the more that they push back in terms of GBV, the more men are being labelled as offenders. So in other words, so you take the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement was about the fact that a whole lot of people came forward, said that I've also been abused by men imposing themselves on me, sexually in this case, to get, um, well, to exert their power over them. And then what happened was the hashtag came back, men are trash. So what happened is men then became very defensive and said that, you know, you, you're saying these things about us and we're not all like this. And it became very divisive. So going forward, for me, the, the, the concept of gender fluidity is more around our ability to occupy different roles that are sort of not heteronormative, that we can, we can think about ourselves in relation to other people, not imposing ourselves on others. And the backlash of that has been the men's rights movements, which have pulled us back an enormous way in the, um, the whole sort of concept of gender conversations because the men's rights movements want to reclaim traditional masculinity. And are, I mean, they're patriarchal, they are, they're very difficult people, and that's been the backlash of the, the movement. So, if I'm hearing you correctly, um, this seems to echo an idea that I've also been going back and forth with in my own personal capacity, this idea that it's not so much masculinity that we have a problem with. It's when that masculinity mas manifests itself in toxic ways. So what is your take on, on, on this idea that, that um, when, 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 people hear the, when people hear the term toxic masculinity, they seem to be referring to all forms of masculinity in one blanket term, whereas the, the, the focus should really be placed on the ways in which this display of masculinity manifests itself in dangerous and harmful ways. And how do we then go about um, empowering and educating our young, our young boys, our young people in this country to know where to strike this balance between healthy showcases of masculinity and when it starts to venture into the toxic realm? It's a, it's a brilliant question because the truth is, is I don't believe there's a problem with masculinity. I mean, people consider me a very masculine man. You know, I'm a boxing coach and, you know, so by very traditional standards, I'm what would be considered masculine. But I do a job that is dominated by females. So, for example, caring for children. So we've largely maternalised care in the home, in society, largely care is maternalised. And I think the, the big shift we need to make is really about how we think about ourselves as men. Because the defensiveness of men around toxicity, I believe, is, is the fragility of masculinity. So for me, the needing to fight back to retain these roles has been because we haven't taken up the the call to empower ourselves to be different in the world. And the truth is that we, we say things in our worlds that we have to really consider what they mean. For example, boys will be boys, you know. That is probably the singly most anti-male phrase that anybody has ever said, because boys will be what we teach them and how we raise them. Boys won't all turn out to be these sort of misogynistic, patriarchal, abusive, toxic, fragile people. It's because of the, the, the constructs that we give masculinity. So for me, the challenge in the, in, in the redefining of masculinity is what of it do we want to retain 
because there are really important positive things to masculinity. We know, for example, and this is, please understand very clearly, I'm not blaming mothers who are single for raising toxic boys. I'm saying that the absence of a father figure is a notable thing. And the, the big problem is, is that people will then blame the woman who raised the toxic man and how did a single mother raise a man who treats women badly. But the, the lack of the presence of a male figure is not benign. So in other words, the man's absence has negative consequences. And, you know, then we get into quite complicated territory with, you know, is it not that two men can raise children or two women can raise children? And the way to answer that is it's about the function we perform. So you have a maternal function. So men can perform a maternal function. That's that function that kind of holds the child close to you, loves them unconditionally, etc. And then you have the paternal function, which is that more risk-taking one that sort of sends the child out into the world. And women can play those roles and men can play maternal roles. So I think it's about roles rather than about the genitalia you are born with. And... Um, you know, I, I think that that needs a bigger conversation around how we make fluidity of roles rather than people seeing... Well, I, in my case, I don't think I lost something by choosing a more female-dominated profession. I gained an enormous amount in terms of the quality of my relationships with people as opposed to if I'd have had that traditional sort of protector-provider role. Now, you mentioned fatherlessness and mm. the role that it plays in the presence of this issue in current society, which I think is a very neat segue to my next question. Mm. As far as this conversation around redefining masculinity, is this a, re a definition that only men can provide to masculinity? Or is there room for, for women and other, um, uh, and other bodies to contribute to this discussion to provide a more holistic new definition for masculinity? There is no doubt that everybody has to be available for that conversation and contribute to it. Because there are some subtle things we do in raising children, even as women, that are, are, are quite strange. I mean, you know, examples I use are things like your daughter comes home from school and says the boy's pulling my hair or he's been mean to me. We say to the, the girl... Um fight back well that's what they said to them that's why they said to the boys I, I suppose but to the girls i can't actually now that i think about it i can't imagine what they would say they would say they things would... like he must like you mm. you know so th there's a strange thing around the fact that you know somewhere we condition our children that this is how boys are and the way they express themselves is through being mean mm. and i mean and that's from tiny children i mean i remember that being said in the context that i grew up in so we, we need also for women to allow men into some of those more fluid roles because there's been some very interesting research about, for example, there was a very, a very nice study done in the UK um, which followed children over a long period of time. And the mom and dad changed the traditional roles. So in other words, dad, because he wasn't as big a earner as the mom, he was going to stay at home when the child was born and mom would go, go to work. To work yeah. Now, when mom gave birth to the child, she found it almost impossible to leave the child at home. And dad, because dad didn't know what his role was and how he was contributing, you know, it was this wonderful idea, but he was, he felt so worthless 
because his role was supposed to be defined by earning money, that he would go to a flea market on the Saturday when the mother was home and sell things he made so he could feel his contributing to the house. Uh. The alternative to that is also true, where why is it that when men occupy traditional roles, so for example, go out and are the provider, and a woman decides that she'd stay at home to raise her children, why is that seen as being a lesser of a woman? Because the, the truth is, is the, the job of parenting children is the single most important job in the whole world, and it's the only job in the world you can't give up. You know, you can't tap out as a parent. Look, parents do, but it's to create damage to their children. So I think there's, there's a need for both in the flow of the continuum. Where do I fit in? Where do you fit in? What am I good at? What are my natural strengths? And, and how do we have these more fluid roles rather than this so, sort of either or? You know, like there, there's a crossover, there's a massive fluidity in between. But we need to negotiate that fluidity because in each family structure that will be different. And there doesn't have to be these very tightly defined roles. Each, I mean, my relationship, my marriage that I'm in, our roles are very fluid across what would be, would be considered traditional gender roles. And some are quite traditional. But it works for us, you know, within that context. Just to latch on to um, everything that you've just mentioned about how men who... Men without the ability to provide adequately to, to, to their share of the parenthood duties are seemingly excluded from participating simply based on their inability to provide those resources. How, how does this restriction of participating in, in the process of parenthood and being a part of the child's lives impact these very same men negatively, impact the children that are, that are subjected to the father's absence negatively? And how does that further fan these flames of contention in this conversation that we're having? So the first thing, which is a sort of a colloquial statement, is children are not like movies. You don't have to pay to see them. Okay, so that's the first thing. So a, a lot of the exclusion of men from their fathering roles has been due to this idea of the shame around the inability to provide. So there's shame from the side of the mother's family, shame from their own side. They, they, they feel that they'll be seen as less of a man by their children. And money has been a big reason for exclusion, and it shouldn't be. Because the ability to provide financially, a lot of the young people I speak to from extremely wealthy families rather want their father's time rather than the stuff their father's provision buys. So, you know, those who have whatever they want rather want time with their dad rather than their dad working all the time. So I think that we need to think about it in two ways. The first is that if a man is going to have sex, he has to realise that he might have a child. And he needs to conceive that in his mind and recognize that his inability to provide is going to impact on the child's life. Because what we know about poverty as a fact is it limits opportunity. Now, nobody has a child to limit their opportunities. It's not what we do. But men have sex for no reason or reasons of power or, and women. But, you know, we're just talking about the men at the moment. So the, the big thing for me that, that sort of comes to mind is that how can men play a role in the lives of their children when they are unemployed? And how do we assist them and the woman to do that? Because women withhold access based on money or maintenance. That's illegal. So just to know that that's not allowed. So that's the first thing. But men also mustn't back off. 
you know. And if men do have money, men must prioritise their children, not their, I don't know, subscription to a soccer club or whatever, you know. So the children must come as a priority in terms of provision. So we want children to have a baseline of care because adequate food is important, you know, adequate schooling is important. It sets young people up for recognising their biggest potential. But on a scientific closing note, there's another very important thing. In the first year of life, um, when the mother is breastfeeding and the primary caregiver and et cetera, et cetera, men have a role. But largely what mother's role is in the neuroscience of a baby's development is that the mother is there to make the child feel safe, to hold the child and to help reduce the fear response. Okay. However, in the second year of life, when the child is starting to enter the world, it's the father's job to decrease the aggression response. <sighs> So if he's missing at that stage, you've got the mother who loved the child, the maternal function, then you've got the paternal function in the, in the second year, which is very important, and that father helps the child suppress their aggression. So in other words, regulate their aggressive outbursts. So you'll see a situation where a mother will be shouting at the children, the father walks in, the child's quiet. Not because the child is scared of the father, but because of the presence of that figure, and that's the importance of that function. It can be played by women, but there, there is, I mean, there's lots of interesting theories about deeper voices like mine, where it resonates at a different part of the ear of the child and affects a different part of the brain, and therefore children are more likely to listen to me than to women. I mean, there's all kinds of fancy theories around it, but the truth is that parents help children regulate and Mothers and fathers do different things for children. Indeed. Now, let's talk about the organization that you represent, mm. Fight With Insight. Amazing mm. work that you do with the young people there. Can you talk me through, first and foremost, how the idea of using boxing as the, as the mode of, of, of instruction and discipline to instill these values that, um, that, that you work to instill in the young people that you work with, being that boxing can be viewed on its own in isolation as a very masculine mm -hmm. activity to partake in. And how do, we go, how do you go about um, helping these young people strike that balance and find what I would term these healthy, productive ways of exerting that masculine energy. So uh, Fight With Insight started as a diversion program for juvenile sex offenders. Mm. So it was for young people who had sexually offended against other young people. So the context was exactly the context of like women and men against child abuse where about a third of our sexual offences at the moment are being perpetrated by other children. The thought that struck me when I was running the program was we would take these boys who had been referred by the courts, they would come into the program, and then I'd send them back to the same community that raised them that resulted in the behaviour. Oh. And it didn't make sense to me. I was like, something's, something's, missing. something's wrong. Yeah. So um, I thought the, the way that boys move between the stages of boyhood and manhood are 
based largely on rites of passage. So if you take two prominent examples, you will have the Jewish community where you will have a bar mitzvah at 13 and you will move into manhood, that Gozo culture where you will go to the mountain yeah. to be a man. And those rites of passage are extremely important. Now, in a complex sort of multicultural city like Johannesburg, those rites of passage have largely disappeared. And they've been replaced by the rites of passage that these boys have come up with themselves, because we haven't given to them, they make them up. And that's largely been a gang-like culture. Now, the gang-like culture is really very much about hyper-masculinity. Rugby is also about hyper-masculinity. Boxing is also about hyper-masculinity. So there's, there's these displays, you know, where, where masculinity is quite performative. You know, men have to endure things and they have to perform in order to be men. And what we, what we did was we said that they need a place where they can be with masculine men doing masculine things that doesn't translate into the, um, the harpiness of it. And that is, it is extremely dependent on the programs that surround the boxing and it is almost entirely dependent on the coach or facilitator. So if you've got a boxing coach who is wanting to go out and win all the titles and step on people to get their box up because they want to earn the money that comes or the glory that comes with the great boxer, that's going to instill that kind of, you know, competitive, you know, winner at all costs kind of mentality. Whereas if you have someone who's saying, I want to get young boys in here to show them there is a place to to exert themselves in a masculine way, but in a controlled, mediated way, where you've got a thoughtful, present adult who is there to assist them to regulate themselves. That's the, that's the most important thing. So really what, what the boxing became about was it really was about a transition into manhood where they could express their masculinity in a city where masculinity is part of your protection. So in other words, if you belong to a gang, it's to get money, it's to... Um, to, to be safe, it's to gain access to things um, such as um, respect by the people in the community, although the respect's through fear. The, all the kind of same things happen in boxing, but it is done in a pro-social way. So we know that the need is for, the need in the adolescent is to belong and to develop an identity. So while they are going through that, that phase, we need to offer an alternative uh, masculinity to the, to the hyper-masculinity of the gang-type culture. Now, considering that it is primarily young people that mm. you do all of this important work with, so when you take them, you take them into a program like Fight, Fight with Insight, you take them through all of the wonderful work that you do with them, and then they get to a point where they have to go back into this very same environment while carrying all of the lessons that they've gathered through working with Fight with Insight. What are the stakes there as far mm. as the likelihood of them relapsing back into their old, mm. their old ways? Do, how, how invested are these organizations in the long-term success of the work that they do with these young children in these programs? It's a brilliant question. We've actually just come back from a conference now, and we've just come back from Cape Town, where it was a funding organisation that funds programmes mainly for girls, and we've kind of come in as a programme mainly for boys that now has tons of girls. So finally, under lockdown, the number of girls we saw went up exponentially. So it was a very interesting, a very interesting dynamic. 
So the, the, the two big challenges we have is that if you have a set of traditional roles that are learned, say, within the family or within the community, and you, you almost disrupt or challenge those roles, when you send people back into their families and into their communities, you, you need to be able to equip them with a set of skills to be gentle, almost like um, thinking of it instead of like a jackhammer, thinking of it like an archaeological dig where you are going in with a feather and you're brushing away and unarking what's happening. Because if you go back and say, oh, those people in the city, especially, you know, when it comes from an old white man, you know, you... You send them back into the family and say, no, we're now challenging your role as dad and how you've done everything over the years. You, you somewhere have to almost mourn your own childhood. Um, there's a sense of judgment over your father because your father, but you still love your father and your father was a good father and he did a good job, but he did make some mistakes. So it's, it's recognising that there needs to be a gentleness associated with it. While activism, it's important for us to be loud, etc. we need to recognise that even for the father, so who comes from a very traditional background where they beat their children and corporal punishment was the order of the day or whatever, suddenly they're told that's illegal. But you haven't given them something to replace it with. You've just judged them. So we, we, are, very, we are very cognizant and very mindful of the fact that the families and communities are systems and they work like a cog. So if you are going to change the way this cog moves, it's got a talking effect on every other part of the system. And we don't want to isolate people from their families. We don't want to uh, make them sort of unable to interact with their communities. So there's a couple of core values that we want to land. And quite frankly, the most important thing we, we land is being kind. You know, we, we want to go back to a place where we recognise that as humans, our ability to develop um, as a species was not based on that kind of Machiavellian, Marty's right, patriarchal, capitalistic, sort of colonial, industrial kind of system. It was based on the fact that we could cooperate and going back to cooperation and what is my place here and that that place is fluid. Now, in your opinion, do you think our country's justice system does enough to, to treat young offenders, that, the young offenders that we've been referring to throughout much of this discussion, with the kind of, with the kind of care and, 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 I'd say, attention that they need, considering the fact that they, while they are offenders, they are also young offenders? Mm -hmm. I, I worry that there seems to be this idea that uh, even, even while listening to you describe the organization um, Fight with Insight and the way that you, um, <coughs> that the way that you first interact with the young people that you work with, there seems to be this idea that the justice system just takes these young offenders and say, oh, no, we don't know how to deal with them. Let's just ship them off to someone who can. So in your opinion, is, is our justice system doing enough to properly rehabilitate the, 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 the plethora of young offenders that are, that, that are found guilty of these crimes? So the, again, South Africa is a complex place when it comes to that. We've got a brilliant constitution. Our Child Justice Act is one of the best I've read. Our commitment to restorative justice is fantastic, however. We're also a country of limitless needs and limited resources. So what happens is it, it's quite hit and miss. 
So, for example, if um, a young person sexually offends in the city of Joburg and they happen to end up at the police unit that deals with Joburg, they will have access to a formal diversion program at the teddy bear clinic and the success rate is very high. If you are in rural Tabanshu and you have done, committed the same offence, you could end up being detained um, you know, kind of endlessly because the community is putting pressure on the police and whatever. So there's there's no consistency in it. So the resourcing is extremely inequitable. Um, the ability to access those services is extremely inequitable. The referral structure from the courts to those services, whether they do and don't uh, exist, is also inequitable. So the the problem is is that while the the technical system exists, the implementation of the system is doing nowhere near enough. We are seeing an increase in offenders, uh, juvenile offenders, and a decrease in referrals to the system. So for example, what you'll get is there is a, let's take an example of the police. So the police are given a, um, a mandate to lower um, the crime rate and they specifically want a lowering of the crime rate when it comes to interpersonal crimes, so rapes and assaults and murders and so on, because that's what scares people the most. So what they will do is a child arrives, so a person under 18 arrives as an offender, they simply don't register the case because now oh, it's a child. You know, the court's not going to do anything. But the problem is, is that child needs services. Now, the reporting of the case was actually to open services to exactly, the child yeah. to ensure that they don't become an adult offender. And if you don't offer services, the chance of them becoming an adult offender is high. And then the day they become an adult offender, you lock them up forever. Oh. So, no, the system is severely broken at the moment, and it's based largely on poor resourcing and a completely inequitable um, distribution of skills and resources, so human resources, people who know how to do the work, as well as actual resources, people who do the work. Mm. So the insight that you've just provided us mm. on the the frailties of the of the justice system as it currently stands does indeed lend itself to um, the ways in which the justice system is factored into the conversation surrounding the need to end the scourge of gender-based violence in this country, the need to end the high rates of violence across South African society, where every time the conversation comes up, as we mentioned earlier at the top of our discussion, a lot of the men feel attacked, a lot of the men feel automatically um, the need to feel defensive in their contributions to this conversation. My question to you, um, possibly to even conclude this, this discussion that we're having, is in as far as our efforts to finally make this scourge of violence in this country, gender-based violence, violence in general in society, a thing of the past, how... How much work still needs to be done in order for us to bridge these gaps between men and women so that men don't feel like they're being talked at, mm -hmm. but rather being included in the conversation, and women don't feel like they're being um, patronized or disrespected mm -hmm. when they raise their very real concerns about the state of violence in this country? We should be very concerned 
about the amount of cases that come to the justice system. You spoke about us having the highest stats in the world. That's reported cases. Oh. Now, if you look at the amount of cases that are reported as opposed to the amount of cases that actually occur, yeah. you have a huge funnel. So the amount they get to the justice system is a tiny fraction of the amount, I mean, and then the ones that where you get successful interventions is a tiny fraction of the ones they get to court. But that's not where we need to intervene. I mean, those, those people are a failure of our entire system because why is it that you are... I mean, we'll go back to the, the pre-sort of 94 South Africa. We had an Immorality Act where they attempted to, particularly in sexual and relational cases, they, they attempt to legislate morality. So, in other words, you're not allowed to have sex with black people, men are not allowed to have sex with men. You know, it was all of that kind of moral legislation. Now, you can't legislate morality. So the justice system is not the answer to this. The justice system is, a, the, justice system is the outcome of the failure of our systematic inability to manage violence within an interpersonal context as a society. Right. So we can't keep moaning at the police and that because the people who are there are the ones we have failed, the people we raised as a society. So how do we move forward? I think your, your, your conversation, I mean, your, your question around the conversation we had about men feeling excluded is a very important one because I think men who do not offend have enormous insights as to how we can solve this. Because why did it, you know, people become abusers because they were abused, which, by the way, is also not true. That's another myth. So there's never been a language for male victimhood because men are simply offenders in waiting. And the idea that, you know, men are becoming soft by attempting to access themselves is a problem. The other problem that we've seen a lot in the work I do is that the idea that for men to be kind of seen as whole and emotionally sentient beings and whatever, is that we need to cry. Men can cry. Of course men cry. I mean, I cry all the time. In fact, I cry watching America's Got Talent, you know, because it's, it triggers something in me, and I love it, you know. And I cry, and everybody finds it quite funny, but no one judges, you know. But we are so much more than the ability to cry, and it's also very reductionistic. Because, you know, the, the idea that for men to be good, they need to be able to express their emotions in the ways women do is not necessarily true either because maybe men express things in different ways. And frankly, certain women express themselves in ways men express themselves, and men express themselves in the way women express themselves. So it, it's about the ability to have a conversation about how did I not become what you expected me to become as this abusive man, and use those lessons about how people have successfully navigated the transition of sexualities, frankly, uh, across the entire continuum, and uh, be able to say that in, that in that context, my kindness is not weakness. The idea that there are certain individuals, both on either side of the gender divide, who want to cherry pick and choose the bits of this very same patriarchy that we all swear wants to be eradicated, but they want to cherry pick the bits and pieces of this patriarchy that most benefits them. For example, um, men wanting to pick and choose just how liberated um, the women in their lives can be. Um, women wanting to, uh, wanting to 
claim um, independence, but still accept, uh, still expect certain um, certain things from the men in their lives that seem to counteract the very same independence that they claim. Divide. How far back will all of this set us in this efforts um, in this effort to eradicate patriarchy once and for all in our society? My belief on the patriarchy is that it it, it gives and maintains access to privilege, and that is only for a select amount of people because only a select amount can be privileged. The reason people will pick and choose that particular part of the patriarchy to hang on to is to give them access to privilege. Mm. And access to privilege by default excludes other people, and by default you are standing on the backs of others' labour, who you generally exploit to amass enormous amounts of stuff, which frankly is money, you know, um, and very little else. Or your, your fragility, which is the other side of the patriarchy, which is the fragility that if I am exposed that, you know, this is not such a difficult job, anybody can do it, but raising my child is actually a big job and I can blame my wife because the child's a bit messed because I was providing the money and the school and whatever, notwithstanding the fact that the schools are also reinforcing some of the patriarchy because they haven't transformed it, especially the boys' schools. And then what message are the girls' schools sending about boys when you separate boys and girls and they don't get to, you know, in the private school setting, they don't get to form relationships with one another and learn how to navigate that. So you must understand our entire system from our monotheistic uh, Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions reinforce patriarchy by their, their very foundation. Um, for example, you will look at the Orthodox Jewish community and they will, um, for example, dress modestly, the women will dress modestly and wear shakels and so on. And why are they doing that? Because if they're in the same shul dressed immodestly, they draw men away from God um, in terms of God's, um, the man's attention to God, so they separate them out. What is that saying? I can't control my impulses to you know, to talk to my God because there are women dressed him. I mean, it, it, it's entrenched in everything. Capitalism, it's firmly entrenched in capitalism. Right. Colonialism, nationalism. It's entrenched in all those institutions and what people are using it for is to gain access to privilege, which is largely money. So I'll give you an example of something we're working on at the moment. So there's a concept called the Great Male Renunciation. So in the Great Male Renunciation, if you look into the 1700s and you looked at the way men, particularly royalty, dressed, you know, they were so flamboyant, high heels, silk stockings, you know, big red capes with, you know, massive adornments and all kinds of things. And then in the 1800s, we had the dandy movement by Beau Brummel and suddenly everybody was in the same suit, you know? tailored and all men look the same. So when you go out to the corporates and everyone's in a tie, which is like a noose, you know, you've got your jacket and your shirt and, and you can't see one other than the other. Now, the first part of that is what else did men give up when they became purely useful and no longer beautiful? So that's the first thing, you know, you don't, there's nothing about it. And fashion became about women and men giving women and women going out and that whole thing. But what you must understand, for example, is that there's many theories around it, but the one, is that men became completely useful and that that suit and tie represented capitalism, you know, and the patriarchy. How long did it take women to get into those suits? If you look at fashion over the years. But now when you power dress, I see women power dressing in black slacks, black shirts, for, for example, like lawyers. Now, how much of the mindset 
of the patriarchy that is about my privilege at the expense of others have been taken on in the role they take on in those very capitalistic corporate kind of environments. And can you have a woman who is, uh, who is patriarchal? You know, yeah. so, and then the, the opposite, and then, you know, it will be say, oh, you know, the, the woman behaved badly in those positions, but if that was a man behaving that way, you wouldn't even look at it because that's how you're supposed to behave as a CEO or a politician or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of very interesting debates, but it'll set us back dramatically because I think that people, and I speak to young people and I say, what do you want to do with your life? I want to make money. I said, that's not a plan. Money is an outcome of a job, you know? And what job do you want? I want to make money. And it's quite strange because there's a book in conclusion from my side called Snakes in Suits that people should read. It's about how you almost have to be psychopathic to work in those sort of massive corporate and political worlds because you have no consideration for the impact, like you can walk in and make a decision to retrench 2,000 people, not give any regard to, I mean, this case in the UK now, they, they on a video call, retrenched 8,000 people. I mean, if I did that, I would jump off a cliff. You know what I mean? Because I would feel so devastated by what I had to do, but you can do it. So it's a lack of consideration that will set us back tremendously because if you cannot consider another, you can always be violent to them. And what we, what we must always remember is the violence we fear so much, you know, the ones that you see in sort of the lower socioeconomic groups, the violence that is brutal where people are bruised and bleeding and dead and whatever. That violence is a result of the structural violence up at the top where corporates are extremely violent in terms of their, but it's, but it's a structural violence that is almost accepted because it's how you make money and making money is what you're there to do. So it's a very, that concept is very complex. I find it very interesting, the analogy that you just provided from the book, um, mm. Snakes and Suits. If you could share the author with us, that would be lovely. Sure, his name's Robert Hare, H-A-R-E. Robert Hare, lovely stuff. It, it, echoes, it echoes an idea that I pick up from watching this uh, uh, television series like Power, for example, mm. where you have to have a certain degree of ruthlessness to get to the to get to the top, regardless of how many people you plow over on your way there, and how this act, this, this ability to access that degree of ruthlessness goes against this or everything that we've been talking about as far as the the the, the work that goes into um, eradicating um, patriarchy, the work that goes into eradicating this idea. Of uh, of men being in touch with themselves, being in touch with their emotions, finding healthy ways to express themselves. It's very interesting how those two ideas um, contrast each other, and I think that's why it was so interesting that you brought that book up. So very um, uh, very salient observation and very uh, salient um, contribution to that. Thank you so much, Luke. As far as uh, those. Um, engaging with this conversation that we're having, whether audio or visually speaking. How can they go about engaging with women um, against uh, men and chi- women and men against child abuse? How can they go about engaging with um, Fight With Insight? Um, can you take, talk us through um, how they can uh, visit their website, whether there are actual premises that they can visit so they can see the work that, uh, that you guys are doing with the very young people that you work with? Absolutely. So with Women and Men Against Child Abuse, just Google it. You'll come to the page. There's two divisions, one which is service delivery, so in other words, services to victims of abuse, 
And then the other is advocacy, you know, making sure the justice system works or the whole system works. Um, in terms of Fight with Insight, we have a social media page uh, and a website, and we have premises uh, in Hilborough that people can just contact us and they can come visit. We have an open day on a Saturday. Anybody can come meet the young people. Anybody can come and contribute. Anybody can come and have their say. Amazing stuff. Luke, thank you so much for joining us. Being joined by Luke Lamprex, representing Fight with Insight, as well as Women and Men Against Child Abuse here on the Manhood Simplified podcast. Absolutely spirited conversation that we've had. Yet another page that we are rewriting on the manual of manhood with each conversation that we have here on the Manhood Simplified podcast. Thank you so much one more time for joining us. Mm -hmm.